Today on The Black Goat, we discuss how we're adapting to teaching and researching during the COVID-19 pandemic, and a letter about working with iffy interview material. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vazir. And uh, I don't know about you guys, this is a time when I've been especially binging on a lot of media and uh, trying new stuff out. And one thing um, that I've discovered, like, when I was a kid, I played a lot of video games, and video games were very much like a solo activity. Like, there were two-player games, but, you know, most video games you did by yourself, and and when I would play a two-player game with my sister, it was usually, like, the games just weren't that interesting. But uh, um, I've been playing a lot of video games with my son, and and it's amazing. I mean, this just makes me sound like an old man, probably, because people who play video games know this. But um, it's amazing how, like, social it is. Um, So it's become this, like, bonding experience where we're playing this game called Human Fall Flat, which is, uh, like, so we play it as a two-player game, and you're the there are these like goofy ass characters there are these sort of humanoid things that are really floppy and they fall over all the time and and so it's kind of goofy like the interface but you're like solving these puzzles together and moving through these sort of like you know uh landscapes and whatever and so we'll you know we'll, we'll sit there and we'll be like strategizing like okay you pick up the thing and then i'll like move the other thing and we'll whatever and let's see if that opens the gate or you know things like that um, but, uh, uh, yeah, so I've been, I've been enjoying a lot of video games, which is a little scary for me because I stopped owning video games because I got super, like, I would just get sucked into them and not do anything else. And, and that was like 20 years ago. I, I was just like, I'd better keep these away from me. And, and so now I feel like it's not, I mean, addiction is too strong. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to go down that whole route, but, uh, I am a little worried about having video games like under the same roof where I work and sleep and live, etc. So far, it's okay, but we'll see. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, I used to play like a lot of video games as a kid, and I sort of have the same kind of hesitation about reintroducing video games to my life that they could like suck up a lot of my time, especially now um, because yeah, I live by myself, and so I could. That's, that seems a lot sadder than, like, you, like, playing video games collaboratively with your kid, you know? Um, is that, I, but is that, like, a generational thing? Because I, I feel like, you know, like, if you sit around by, if you sit by yourself and watch six hours of a Netflix show. I'm also scared of doing that. <laughs> well, yeah, but, but I mean, people don't say, like, oh, that's sad and pathetic. They're, they're like, oh, I binged on this show. And I, you know, do, is that, like, a generational thing? Because when we were kids... video games were this sort of they were looked down on you know and and now they're like mainstream culture and and so is that just us or is that like I don't know do if you're like 19 years old does spending six hours playing video games seem like a bigger waste of time than six hours watching old The Office reruns (laughs) I don't know I don't know I don't have the same um, asymmetry as you do I think that like both of those, (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say pathetic. (laughs) I didn't know that video games were not cool when we were growing up. I thought 
but yeah, and I, I have yeah, the reverse. Like I thought video games were cool when we were growing up, and now they're not. But I don't know if that's just because. Really, I I thought video games. I don't know. This is sort of interesting. I mean, I I I feel like video games were like totally like a nerd thing. Maybe I'm I am a little bit older than both of you, so maybe that's a difference. Or maybe there's just like some kind of like, is this like the Dunning Kruger of cool mm-hmm. like. You have to be cool to know what's not cool. And so if you're not cool, you think uncool things are cool. Like, that's probably, there's probably something to that. But, yeah, probably. Uh, but I was not cool, so I don't know. I mean, how it might I just be like it, a thing where, because I didn't really play video games, but my brother and his friends did, and I felt like they were in on something I wasn't or something like that. So maybe, like, if you didn't play, you thought you were mm-hmm. missing out. And if you did, maybe you thought everyone else thought you were a nerd. Or, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So are you guys binging on any media? these days only as much as i always did <laughs> i'd say <laughs> yeah i don't know if i'm watching i don't think that i'm watching much more like netflix or um or anything i started re-watching like i feel like it's sort of like nice to have something that's like um familiar to watch um but that's sort of a double-edged sword because basically like anything that was made not within the last five years seems terribly dated like so I started watching um, Parks and Recreation again, and like it's pretty outrageous how um, how like out of touch the first episodes in that series seem. And I don't know, like it can't have been that long ago. Although that series, um, I remember everyone told me to skip the first season, so I've actually never seen the first season. So I wonder if maybe the first season is especially bad. That's interesting. Maybe the first season is especially bad. It also has a uh, like a guest spot on like yeah, a few that. episodes yeah. with Louis C.K., um, which is like really hard to watch because, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah um, I, that that like that thing about it seeming day. You know, I, I have the same experience, and it's it's kind of like I I've thought about this that you know because sometimes it'll seem weird to me that kids will watch kids whatever younger people especially like watching friends you know because i'm like that seems so old but then you know i'll realize like when i was a kid i watched a lot of shows that were that had originally you know gilligan's island and and, (laughs) you know the brady bunch and stuff that was in reruns by the time i was old enough to be conscious of it um and and that was and there's this way in which it's almost like because it's it's like so far dated that it's like just of another time it's like it's not it doesn't feel old it just feels like fiction you know yeah, like right. fiction set in a different era and and which is a little it makes me feel even older that like friends which was you know like kind of popular during the early part of my adulthood like to kids now they probably watch it and they just think of it the way i thought of like shit from the 1950s that is a such kid. a weird like <laughs> Um, a weird way of thinking about that that I hadn't like considered at all because yeah I used to do that too like I'd watch like Leave it to Beaver and stuff like that and you're right it just feels like you're like watching something that's happening on another planet um, so the, yeah the idea that like college kids could be watching Friends and feeling that way is pretty weird yeah I have a hard time knowing how to deal with the like yeah changing standards and different norms now like there's shows I like for other reasons but they make me cringe and I don't know how to find that balance mm-hmm. yeah I've definitely been binging a bit on yeah. Netflix shows but I always did that that's how I fall asleep so I've always watched like one to three hours of streaming television per night um to your point about um video games Sanjay uh I think my lab and I are gonna do like a like a 
social night once a week or whatever. Um, and we had our first one last week and we played these like, um, these online Jackbox games. I don't know if you guys know what these are. Um, but basically you, um, you, I don't know, you just like play this game online with each other and it's sort of like playing a board game or something. So like the ones that we played were pretty like similar to apples to apples or like a trivia game or something. And like it keeps score. Um, but I could see like spending a lot of time doing that. Yeah. I'm glad I'm bad um, at technology because yeah. I've tried a couple of websites where you are supposed to be able to like play, like there's this French card game that my lab used to play tarot and one of my students found a website oh, yeah, where you yeah. can like play with real mostly French people and I tried like a couple of times and I couldn't get it to work and I gave up and that might be a good thing I feel like technology is going to get in the way of like most things beyond playing free cell which is how I kill time now when, when you guys play that are you just um you, are you just playing the game or are you in like a zoom or video chat simultaneously we're in a zoom simultaneously okay. Yeah, because that feels that does feel very different. Like I have uh, um, a group of people I play poker with, and we found a website that'll basically sort of run the poker game. Um, and so we have like a Zoom chat, and then we're you know playing this game with each other. Um, and it feels very different than like sitting down to just like play online poker with a screen. You know, yeah. it's like it's almost like that, which is kind of similar to a lot of I think. There's like two kinds of game night people. There's the game night people that it's about the game yeah. and the socializing is the thing that goes on top. And then there's the people that it's about the socializing and the game is the pretext. Right, right, right. Um, and it, it feels very much like you need to have the Zoom window. If, if it's really about the socializing and the game is the pretext, um, just having the game is not satisfying at all. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, these are also like very, um, very social games. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like... It feels more like, yeah, playing like board games together than it does like uh, playing, like participating in some online game or something like that, which I have done that before too. Like sometimes I'll play online chess with people, um, but it feels like not social at all, basically. Right. I mean, sometimes you don't even want that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there are some online games where it's like if, if a video window suddenly popped up and you had to like see the person, you're like, fuck, no, I don't I don't want to know. <laughs> you're like, I don't, I don't need to know what color to you. your like, undershirt is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, no, just keep, keep moving your pieces. <laughs> oh. So, I mean, when you played the, the tarot game w- with your lab, was it uh, wait, did you say you played it with your lab? Yeah, before. Did you guys do it like. Oh, before coronavirus. Like in okay. person. All right. In, oh, okay. In, in the old uh, disease yeah. transmitting way of yeah, being in the same room. cards. <laughs> I know, yeah. yeah. I thought about that with like when before all the social distancing, but when this was starting to come on the radar and I was thinking like card games and just I was like, how many yeah. germs get transmitted in a card game? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, we're all going to be weird germaphobes yeah. for a while after this is all over. It, it's going to be super weird, yeah. Well, should we, uh, should we do our letter? Yeah, let's do our letter. Okay, cool. Dear the Black Goat, I'm currently writing my master's thesis. The project involves developing an app. To get the requirements of the um, app, interviews were conducted by my supervisor. My supervisor is from the med tech field and has no training in psychology. The interviews which were conducted um, are chock full of leading questions, double-barreled questions, and all of the common no-gos of questionnaires and interview questions. My question is... 
how concerned should I be about this? I generally have only, um, have only had a quantitative background and as such, I'm suspicious of qualitative methods as is. I know this is not a good example of qualitative work. A lot of useful requirements have been derived from the interviews, but it just doesn't feel right to base my work on something which feels so unscientific. I'm looking forward to hearing what you think. Kind regards, the amiable pig. Um, I, I liked this letter because, so I find it a little hard to, I guess, directly answer um, this person's question about how concerned they should be about the, the content of the questions um, in the interview. Um, but I thought this uh, sort of, if we could sort of broaden the question a little bit, I thought it was interesting to consider sort of um, when you might sort of like challenge your advisor on their research decisions, um, when as a grad student, um, you might sort of like take opportunities to um, show your advisor how they could do things better and how best to go about that um, and things like that. So I was curious what you guys thought about um, about how to go about that and maybe how you approach that from the other, other end with your own students. Samin, I feel like you are particularly like inviting of criticism from your students. I hope so, but I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I mean, I think I, think I have a personality that disinvites it. Um, at least from my undergrads, maybe not as much from my grad students, I hope, but I know uh -huh, people who don't right. know me well, I think, feel intimidated and are less likely to point out. I mean, yeah, like when I first started teaching at WashU, I didn't know that WashU has this rule that's not written down anywhere. The classes start seven minutes after the official start time. And so I kept yelling at my students for being late to class, like everybody was late to class and it didn't occur to me that maybe it was me and not them. So like that was a good lesson to me that like it's going to take like four class meetings before they like tentatively raise their hand they're like you're wrong so I tried to make it easier for people to tell me mm -hmm. I'm wrong by asking for feedback and things like that but I do think it's something that everybody needs to worry about as an advisor and especially those of us with personalities that people find intimidating or other demographic characteristics that make us intimidating and I mean I think like yeah like really pushing for like do you agree with this? Is this, are you comfortable with this decision? Stuff like that as an advisor, I think those are the kinds of things you can do and really actually letting the grad students, especially if they're lead author on something or if it's really their project, like letting them make the final decision, I think gives them the sense that you really will respect their difference of opinion and so on. From a student's perspective, yeah, I don't know. I think it depends so much. Some advisors, mm -hmm. there will be huge penalties and costs. And so I think it's so much a case by case thing, like how to approach telling your advisor that you disagree with the methods or approach taken in a, in a study. Yeah, I, I feel like the there's this, I see a lot of times students, grad students, undergrads, whoever, are really hesitant to give feedback to people. And it is maybe is just more general about status and power differences, right? People are really, really, but I see this in the student context, really hesitant to sort of tell their advisor, I don't, you know, that thing you did wasn't working, it wasn't right, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like it's, it's the, it feels like most of the time they're over, they're like more worried than they ought to be but it's because the times when they're not are super consequential, right? Like it's it's like the rare but costly 
advisor blows up at you who the fuck do you think you are talking to me like that blah 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 for something reasonable and so what you see is like most of the time or very often you know people will be like okay yeah thanks you know or or whatever um and so it's not that i guess what i'm trying to say is i don't even though it happens quite frequently i I don't want to just say oh it's irrational just tell your advisor because i you know i understand why people have those concerns but you know i do you know myself like i i remember as a student having a number of times when I would have these hesitations and, you know, I would finally say something or somebody else in the lab would finally say something and it, it, you know, often the response was like, wow, thank you. Why didn't you say this sooner? You know, um, so, yeah, so without knowing this person's advisor, it's hard to say, but I would say in a frequency, in the frequency domain, more often than not, it's fine. It's just, you know, you worry about those few times, but I think, uh, um, most of the time it's fine to broach the subject and to, you know, and th- this is also an area where from the letter, the, the letter writer that isn't specific, they say specifically that they don't have expertise in qual methods, um, but that they do have some relevant expertise as a psychologist. They, you know, if you know questionnaire design, it's certainly not the same thing as doing a good qualitative interview, but there, there are things in common. They know what double-barreled questions are, et cetera. They have this domain expertise that their advisor doesn't because their advisor is not a behavioral science person or isn't a psychologist. Um, and so it creates this really interesting situation where it's like, even though there's this sort of status differential advisor-student, the student in this case has more relevant expertise to the problem than the advisor. Like they have something to teach the advisor. Um, I mean, I'll say as, as an advisor, like I find myself in that situation more and more. Oh, yeah. um, my students know things that I don't. Uh, they've always known things that I don't, but I feel like it's getting either more frequent or at least more noticeable to me. Um, and so, you know, I always appreciate hearing like hearing that. I mean, I think if you want to spare the person's ego, if you're worried about it, you can you can sort of do it as questions. You can say like, oh, I was, you know, I was reading up about good qualitative methods. And, that, you know, some of the ways you ask these questions, like, you know, it sounds like maybe we might be missing out on some important information because of the way you frame the questions, blah, blah, blah. So you could sort of, you know, you can attribute it to like a thing you read or whatever. Um, that, that can be a way to do it. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Because I feel like we've talked about these kinds of questions before when it comes to like advisors asking you to do things that you um you don't think are like the most ethical or the most like open or reproducible or whatever um and I think one thing that we've uh brought up is that there might be a way to sort of like blame the complaint on somebody else so like point to a paper that says you shouldn't do things this way or point to a blog post or um, or like quote a more senior person um, who's not your advisor. Or frame it as like strategic, like, oh, I bet we could have a better chance of getting it accepted in a journal right. if we right. do this or something mm-hmm. like yeah, that. Yeah, that's always but like... Re- less in a moral yeah. dimension and more in a strategic mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a reviewer too will say blah, blah, blah is a really powerful <laughs> rhetorical tactic yeah, in, right. in a team <laughs> meeting um, because then it's like, look... I'm not being the asshole here, but uh, I just want to make sure we get this thing into a journal, um, uh-huh. you know. Uh, but I think also, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a pretty safe strategy. I, I do think it's worth at least, you know, it's hard to say without knowing this person, the advisor and their personalities, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, interdisciplinary collaborations can include this sort of professor, student, advisor, advisee kind of difference, right? And this is 
this is an interdisciplinary collaboration situation. So even if you're the junior person, the less status person, whatever, if you're working across disciplines, the whole, uh, not the whole point, but a big part of the point of that is, is that each person has some expertise the other doesn't have. And so, you know, I wouldn't instantly shy away from the more direct, like claiming some expertise on how to collect behavioral science data. Um, I mean, it's a little weird because the person within their world of psychology feels like it's not their expertise. This is another thing that I think happens in interdisciplinary situations sometimes where like within your discipline, you would not be the expert. But when you're talking to people completely outside of your discipline, any little bit you know from inside of your discipline is like a massive knowledge right. advantage over the other people. You know, like if I'm if I'm in a meeting with a bunch of psychologists and I start spouting off about working memory, it's kind of ridiculous. But if I'm, you know, in some other interdisciplinary context and there's no other psychologists in the room, it's like, well, I know a lot more about working memory than these people do, um, even though it's... <laughs> pathetically small by by my field local standards so right. sometimes you have to sort of recalibrate in these interdisciplinary standard settings and be like you know what I, like I would not tell other psychologists I'm an expert in qual methods but in this setting I'm the one that knows the most about them and and you know I it's okay to you know to claim an appropriate amount calibrated appropriate amount of like being the authority mm -hmm. in the situation yeah yeah and I mean as you guys have noted I think like uh, a lot of this depends on the the way that the advisor will react is obviously dependent on the person. Um, but I can certainly think of cases where my like students have offered to sort of like be the experts on an area or like learn how to do something or figure something out. And I love those situations. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm like really grateful to, um, but I mean, it wouldn't always be the case. Like there could be, there might be something where I'm like touchy about it. And if my student were like, I think that I know how to like do this better than you, I would say. But like, I think if you're I nervous, disagree. if you have know. reason to think that it might be touchy, then I think framing it as like an offer to go and read up about it and say like, I don't know if it's too late, but right. like I was thinking I would love to learn more about interview practices. So like, would it be helpful if I went and read about it? Would we still have uh -huh. like time and room to make changes? Or would that just be like a waste of time because we're not going to be able to change right, it anyway? Yeah. Something like that might be a good way to frame it. Like this is something I want to learn about anyway. Could I, yeah, make some have some input here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and th and this that's that brings up a good point too, Samin. That that like sometimes it's just not like I, I think you you have to make the calibrated decision of whether it's worth having the discussion at all, right? So and it's again in the letter it's a little unclear like sounds like the interviews were already done. And so raising these objections about the interviews would essentially mean we have to go back and redo them. And so is that like, you know, is the project going to be seriously flawed or misdirected if you go forward? Or is it just, you know, well, these weren't ideal, but, you know, I think we'll probably do okay anyway um, and and proceeding without it. And that, that's a tough position to be in because we get into academia by being maximizers, not satisficers. You know, we, we love to get like all the details. I mean, even if you're not a detail oriented person, just like understanding like principles and concepts and whatever else, like you can intellectualize anything. And sometimes it's really hard to be like, 
you know, uh, what's the saying in, in, I think it comes from the, the business world, like done is better than perfect or something like that. I might not have it exactly right, but, um, perfect is the enemy of, well, there's perfect is the enemy of the good, but then, good. yeah. And then there's like right. done is better than uh, anyway, it's something like that, but, but I can't remember that. There's, a, there's another think, one. That's yeah. Like that. <laughs> yeah. I think perfect might be better than done. Okay. You know what? I'm going to have to pause, pause the podcast and go look this up because now it's going to, no, this is exactly the issue. Right? <laughs> I, we can't, we can't go, we can't release this podcast without me getting it right. Anyway, uh, see, I'm going to learn to live with the fact that I don't know if I actually quote <laughs> This is actually a good oh, segue. I mean, really we, nice. we're not, we don't have to go into it yet, but we should talk about this in our main segment too, about mm-hmm. how much are you trying to get everything right this yeah. time? Yeah. Not at all. That's like, <laughs> that's like my main advice to my students. Yeah. I commonly well, give that advice to my students. Oh. You, yeah. you what? give the advice to my students to just like do a worse job essentially yeah i find such huge individual differences like some of them i need to be like stop (laughs) doing such a good job and some of them i need to be like yeah (laughs) that's true that has also happened you're right you need to try a little harder Uh, yeah well do you guys have anything else for the for the letter writer i don't think so no okay well thank you uh to our letter writer the amiable pig. I'm not sure where that comes from, but I kind of like it. Um, Same. Uh, and listeners, if you have a letter for us, we would love to get your letters. We were actually just saying we're uh, um, we often have a backlog of letters right now. We uh, um, we don't have a huge backlog, and so uh, would love to get letters from listeners. If you're in some kind of a dilemma, a situation, have a problem that you'd like to hear what we have to say about it. You can contact us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash blackgoatpod. Instagram, instagram.com slash blackgoatpod. We're on the web, www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. And you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and all those other nifty places. So for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about, uh, I guess, how our work and just sort of academic work in general, maybe, but in particular, our experiences of how work is being disrupted and changed by all these adjustments to the coronavirus pandemic. Um, So, you know, I think uh, we're all in places where there's social distancing measures in place, um, you know, different names for it. People, some people call it quarantine, some people call it isolation, some call it social distancing. You know, Oregon, it's a stay at home order or something like that. But whatever it is, right? Like it's really, you know, so my campus right now is mostly shut down. So they've kept the dorms open. A few students are living in the dorms. But um, like, I think I, I, I haven't even been into my building in a, a few weeks. And I got an email that said, like, if you're going to come into the building, you have to tell somebody so they can do enhanced cleaning, whatever that means. Um, and so it's really just sort of changed things. Everything's remote. Everything's, uh, I sit in the same fucking room eight, nine, ten hours a day and, mm-hmm. and just stare at the same walls and, and I'm going crazy. Um, and so we wanted to talk about how that's affecting our te- teaching, how that's affecting our research, how that's affecting other parts of academic life. So are you guys teaching this term? Yeah. Should we give a little bit of background on our academic circumstances? Sure. Why don't you mm-hmm. go first, Samin? Okay. So we're on quarters at Davis, so that means the spring quarter started two weeks ago. 
um, I'm not teaching spring quarter. I did all my teaching fall and winter quarters, but I do have a lab with 35 undergraduate research assistants that we usually treat like a class. So we meet every week. We have readings and reaction papers every week um, and so on. So it's not at all like a full teaching a full class. I don't have to have deliver lectures or things like that, but there's some aspects of it that we had to adapt. Um, and then other than that, my situation is that I'm in Australia probably for the whole term. So there's the time difference and things like that. Um, and also another thing we might talk about is that I am starting a job at University of Melbourne in a few months. And with all the talk of hiring freezes and universities rescinding job offers and stuff, I actually moved up my start date because I got nervous about that. So I am now after this term at Davis, I will be starting at Melbourne right away instead of waiting a few more months after that. So I'm doing all the things one does when one changes jobs and all that and countries and stuff. So that's my overall situation. Oh, and we have kids part-time too. So some, some days there's kids in the equation, some days not. Mm-hmm. Alexa, what about you? What's your current situation? So I'm also not teaching because I'm on sabbatical this semester. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So like what, what this should be, I guess, or the way that I f- think I should feel about it is that I have this like really um this this time where i have a lot of time to devote to research and i can think about bigger projects and things like that which i think is true of sabbatical generally um and maybe like particularly true in these circumstances um so uh i'm very fortunate in that i right now i don't yet have to um yeah to adapt any like classes to be online I likely will have to do that in the summer because I'm teaching but I haven't had to deal with that yet and I'll have much more lead time um but then in terms of in terms of research what I've been finding is so I tried to be pretty um what I what I've tried to do with my lab um is to tell them that I don't necessarily expect them to be as productive as they usually are with research, partly because this is a stressful time and also partly because several of them are teaching. And so um, they are having to deal with all of this like transition to um, online classes. Um, So we have pretty much the same sort of like relationship as we usually do, but our meetings are now of course on zoom. Um, And so I'm trying to, um, make sure that I'm not holding them back in any way. Um, so we're still, we're still doing that kind of thing. Um, and then I've been, yeah, I've been trying to think about like to work on bigger picture projects. Um, and I don't always find it easy. Um, some days I feel like quite motivated to do that. And it feels exciting to think, to have like sort of like a bigger goal. Um, and some days I find it pretty hard to care about that. And, especially since I don't have the same kinds of like reinforcers that you would normally have going into work and the same kinds of, I guess like, uh, this isn't quite the right word, but like triggers or like associations that motivate you. And like, um, yeah, some days I like, uh, I have tons of time to do work and I don't do very much work at all. It's, it's hard. I, uh, um, you know, so I've got, I've, I've got a lab. We're still, uh, um, we have our, you know, we have our lab meeting tomorrow. We're doing it over Zoom. I've been meeting with students over over Zoom as well. Um, it's been, 
you know, I've been trying to be really flexible both with my lab and so I'm teaching 150 undergraduate research methods class. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel like, you know, some people are, you know, some people's external circumstances are quite different from others. So, you know, people with childcare responsibilities versus not is, is a difference. I'm, I'm sort of in the middle. I've got a 10 year old son, but my wife works part-time and flexible. So she's taken on um, the majority of the, the childcare. So I, I have not been as impacted as people who are either sole caregivers or, or in different kinds of situations. But like among people I'm, you know, students and others that I'm working with, that that's a variable. There's, you know, variables in, um, uh, you know, whether they're teaching or not and, and how much. And there's also just like, you know, in the less tangible, like sort of concrete situational terms, but just people I've noticed are, are really differentially impacted by what's going on, by the, the change in routine, by the worries that they're having about the world. And, you know, I, I have days where I'm a both ends of the spectrum and and so I you know I bet a lot of other people do too and so I you know I've just been trying to everyone I deal with um, especially if I'm in any kind of a position of authority or, or whatever you want to call it trying to give people space um, and, and but also not to assume that they need that or even want that some people want structure and keep things moving and some people need yeah, that right. and so that's been a big part of it is trying to adapt to other people and then also like try to figure out when and how I need space for myself because yeah there's definitely been I think when it first happened you know when we were first whatever however long ago that was it's now been three four weeks when we were starting to have these emergency meetings on campus about we might be shutting down soon blah 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 um from that and going forward for the first couple of weeks after that was like this big adrenaline surge of um, like I needed to convert my class, which was just an absurd amount of work getting ready to, to teach this class in a remote teaching setting. But then also I'm chair of my department's undergraduate education committee. And so I was trying to figure out ways that I slash we could be helpful to others. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I, what ended up happening actually was we created ways in which we could all help each other, which was really cool. And so I don't want to claim that I was like holding up my department because I was not. Um, but I was, you know, sort of spending some time trying to think about like, what can we do to, to sort of support each other through this? Um, and so, you know, it's like on the one hand, I, you know, so I was in this sort of mode and then as things, you know, you get into like the exhaustion phase, um, and, you just can't be on that adrenaline rush anymore. And, you know, trying to figure out like, when is it okay for me to just be like, I'm gonna have a, you know, I, I'm like three hours into the day and I've just realized like, today's gonna be a shit day and I'm not, I'm gonna have to, I'm, I already know by the end of the day, I'm not gonna have gotten much done and I need to like start preparing myself to feel okay about that. Um, and, and I have some days like that, and then some days where I'm cranking along and getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and so, it's interesting yeah. how different different people's trajectories are. Because for me, like, the first two weeks, 
I didn't have that adrenaline rush, that energy, partly because I wasn't teaching, but like, but also people who depended on me were like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Are we doing this next week? Are we? And, then, and for me, it was like, well, three days ago, I would have said like, I'll see you in two weeks back in California. And now I'm like, I don't know when I'm going back. So like, I like, I don't know what's going to happen next week. I have no idea. And I don't want to like decide right now. And so for the first couple of weeks, I was just kind of trying to delay, delay everything and not do a lot and just I mean it was also supposed to be our spring break and I had like I don't know I was adjusting to the fact that now I was in Australia not going to go back so it's interesting I think a lot of people probably had what you had which is like the first week or two is like oh let's figure everything out let's prepare for this big change whereas I had for some reason the opposite reaction I was like let's take a week or two and see what the world looks like because I feel like it it's changing so fast that I just don't know how to plan and then maybe in a week or two I'll have a better sense but it's hard when you have to like, yeah, that, you're also responsible for other people. So it's not just about your reaction and what kind yeah. of week you're having, but if they're having a different kind of week, then you have to match them a bit. Yeah, I mean, it, it's also, I mean, I think that a lot of that was because there were things for me that there were things that just had to get done right, because, right. but but like there were a lot of things where, because especially at first, everything was changing so fast every single day. Mm-hmm. And and this is still the case that like you just you can't plan that far ahead. So mm-hmm. so if you don't have something to do for like three days from now, it's almost like there's no point doing it because you don't know if it's going to be the same or mm-hmm. different. Like to give a concrete example, we were um, we had a faculty meeting last week and we were talking about uh, um, somebody brought up like, should we change our teaching assignments for the fall? Because a lot of people are doing all this work converting their classes to, to remote. And they, they may have been planning to teach something different in the fall, but now they might want to just repeat what they taught. And, and you know, but that raises the question of, like, what's going to happen in the fall? And nobody fucking knows, right? So if, if I knew that in the fall we were going to be back to remote teaching again, I'd make one set of decisions. If I knew we weren't, I'd make a different one. And the reality is we might not, we might think it's going one way for a while and then it goes the other like there's all this uncertainty around will coronavirus turn out to be seasonal mm-hmm. right so we might have a it might things might get better over the summer and then it could come roaring back because apparently that's what happened in 1918 flu um and we'll so find out in a few months in australia yeah right, that's true seasonal for us is upside down seasonal for you guys you're going to be the other side of the wave mm-hmm. um so we'll yeah you tell us whether we're going to have to deal mm-hmm. with it in the fall um yeah, so it's just, it's, it's, it's this, uh, so it's like you have this sense that everything's unsettled and I can't make plans. And that itself is like a source of stress, right? Like it's one thing, the stress of like preparing for things is one kind of stress. And the stress of, of not knowing how to prepare. And so just having to be like, I'm just going to wait and see. And then I'm going to have to rush at the last minute, whatever it is. Um, that's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sanjay, I, this is sort of a selfish question, but I'd be pretty curious to hear like specifics about how you modified your class. Um, partly because I will have to do those things. And then partly because I think that probably lots of people who are listening are in the process of doing this right now and might be curious. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, um, I'm really lucky that I, uh, a couple of my colleagues in my department, um, have taught online classes before. And I have a number of friends who, who've taught like real online classes, like classes that were born online, that were planned from the get-go to be online. And so people, so I spent a lot of time, you know, listening to them um, and just trying to read about like what's good online pedagogy, as well as, you know, 
sort of thinking for myself and seeing what other people were saying about the current situation and sort of what unusual needs students are going to have. Because a lot of students in a traditional online class, that's what they signed up for. So they already knew that they that was what they were doing. They had the technology in place, blah, blah, blah. So I think one, you know, one principle was sort of structure that um, structure in the sense of um, I wanted my students to have a like a routine and a regularity. So one thing that people said was make all of your deadlines the same day and time every week um, because students are going to be confused. They're not going to know what's going on. Um, and so so like for my class, almost everything is due every week on a Sunday night. Um, and so it's just weekly every week. There's this there's a bunch of assignments. They're all due Sunday night um, and they all go up so far at least I, I hope I don't fall behind they all go up Monday morning so students have a full week um, so what I'm doing <coughs> I'm recording lecture videos um, and another thing that people said was don't do like a full hour and a half lecture or whatever um, so I'm taking my lectures and I'm breaking them up into about 15 minute videos um, it's much less time, running time than would be in the classroom. You sort of realize like how much of your time in the class is you're answering questions or you're doing an interactive activity or you're just slowing down until you see people put their pencils down while they're taking notes and all this other stuff. So the same amount, I mean, I, I, I scaled back a little bit on content, but not a lot, but like I would have had 160 minutes of classroom time per week and I'm condensing that to 45 minutes to an hour worth of like three to four of these 15 minute videos and it's almost the same amount of content a little bit less but almost um so so every week there's a reading assignment then there's three or four of these lectures each one is followed by a little quiz that's just actual straight stuff out of the thing that's just like did you understand what you just saw um and then there's a worksheet and then the end of the week is a feedback survey so every single week I ask them for feedback about how the week's going and then every week has that exact same structure and then on Tuesdays we do a live zoom meeting um, that's optional so I don't take attendance um, the worksheet is kind of the basis so so the meeting starts with a Q&A they can ask me questions about the material or whatever else and then we use the zoom breakout groups and I have a set of instructions that's like a discussion based on the previous worksheet um, and so one of the things people said was like in these this is true in live classes as well but especially in this context like you have to give them a lot of structure and something to work from you can't just say like go into a group and talk for 10 minutes or whatever um, so there's that one thing that's different from online classes is there's no proctoring you know there's no way to do a proctored assessment and so I'm gonna do I haven't done one yet but I'm gonna do short answer quizzes that are open textbook open whatever um, we'll see how that goes um, and then there's a paper that they'll do at the end that's kind of a short paper sort of bringing in concepts from the class so that's sort of the so you know it was trying to think about like structure and then the zoom stuff is really about connection like students feel really isolated and alone and I wanted them to have the experience of feeling like they're human beings, like me as their professor, but also like their classmates. So that's why we're doing these breakout groups. Um, 
So yeah, that was kind of like, and then accessibility issues. So everything is asynchronous. There's nothing in the class that you have to be in a particular place at a particular time for. Like the live Zoom meetings are optional. I record them. There are discussion boards that people can, if they can't make the Zoom meeting, but they want to have a discussion with their students, I set up discussion boards for them. Um, so, you know, thinking about accessibility, thinking about the fact that students are going to have different, these different challenges. Um, uh, one of the things I, I don't know if any of my students are listening, I'm going to sort of give away the game. Um, there's, there's quote unquote deadlines, but, uh, I'm not penalizing anyone for being late on any deadlines this term, Mm -hmm. um, because the deadlines are really there to give them, to keep them moving forward so they don't get so far behind. But it's like, if, if somebody's like, I, if somebody misses, I'm not even going to ask if somebody misses a deadline, I'm just not going to penalize them. Um, cause I'm just assuming that so many students are going to have shit going on in their lives. There's no point in like having a deadline that I will make every exception to. So it's just canvas is set up. So there's no penalties if something's late, but I, I call them deadlines anyway. So people will just sort of keep moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's been challenging. Um, the technology took a long time for me to learn. I'm still learning how to like record myself. Um, doing podcasting is a little bit of a help, but not much. Like I, you know, the first time I tried one of these videos, I looked flat as fuck. I was just like, I was bored watching myself within 30 seconds. Uh, Actually 30 seconds is generous. Um, and so you have to, to, to appear just like a normal human being internally, it feels like you are, chewing the scenery and overacting like I that's just, what Samin has like... to do when she has her picture taken yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like such a jackass I'm like putting on these like what feel to me like exaggerated facial expressions just to and then I watch the video and I'm like okay that's a little less boring yeah. but you know so there's like all these things so I have to learn the performance aspects of it I have to learn how to record I have to learn how to like <laughs> put all this shit mm-hmm. up you know it's just it's been yeah, it's yeah my doing... student okay. oh this is quick my student texted me the other day and he was like i just recorded an entire 50 minute lecture and then realized that my mic wasn't on and then he was like i'm oh, sad no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's another advantage of doing the 15 minute chunks is if you fuck it up it's not not as much oh my god oh i feel so bad yeah. for your student i did too we're doing a little bit of each of those things for my undergrad research assistant. So we have like discussion forums on Canvas and then we have, we pre-recorded a video introduction of each of us and then we have optional Zoom, we call them tea times. That's what we used to do um, in person. And that's really fun because then people like drop in and they show us their pets. And and I actually feel like I've gotten to know a lot more about them than I would in a typical quarter. So like the first week the Canvas discussions was just like, tell us about yourself and what you're doing in quarantine and stuff like that. And so I learned things about them that I, the ones who've been in my lab for many quarters, I didn't know. And the Zoom tea times are also, they feel a little bit more intimate, not too intimate, but like a good more intimate um, than our in-person tea times and stuff like that. Um, But yeah, like if I had to do it as much as people teaching a real class did, uh, like recording the videos, yeah, I have... I have to record a video for a collaborator and I've just been putting it off for like three weeks. And I hate recording videos. Yeah. I can't, there's no, nothing I can do to come across as a normal person. Are you, so with your, with your students, what do you think it is that's different now that, I mean, cause that is an interesting, like, 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm not a like silver linings person. Normally I sort of stuff like that when it feels forced gets under my skin. So I don't want to be like, Oh, it's great. You got to know your shit. But it does like, there are spots here and there of like interesting things happening. And that sounds like one of them, like what, what do you think is different now? Is it the medium? Is it just that like the fact that they're in their homes? I think, I mean, we have the luxury, the fact that we're, so it's, it's always been a pass fail class. And right now, like I just, during a regular quarter, I feel like I have some pressure to make them take it as respons- as, re- as seriously as a regular class. And now I don't feel that pressure. I feel like I hope they get something out of it. I want, like you said, Alex, like I don't want to hold them back. That's my main thing. But compared to their other classes, we can be low pressure. We can be like, look, it's fine. Do your other stuff first. If you have time and energy for this, great. Um, and so I feel like we are maybe a little bit more of a bright spot in their academic life right now than in a typical mm-hmm. quarter. Maybe, I don't know. That's kind of the feeling I get from their mm-hmm. comments and talking to them. I'm not sure if that's if that's what explains it. Though. There is also something like, I mean, obviously you lose something by interacting with somebody over Zoom rather than in person. Um, but if you're like Zooming with people in their homes, you just like see a side of people that you don't normally see, right? Like you wouldn't normally see their pets. You don't know like what they have on their walls or like things like that. Um, that, yeah, like I, I'm seeing more of like, my um grad students like significant others now because they'll like walk through the screen and like wave and things like that um so yeah that's kind of interesting alex sneezing is a recurring i know i didn't i just like wrote down that i have to cut out his sneeze from this episode (laughs) maybe i'll leave it in it'll be like a what do they call that like an easter egg or something like find alex's sneeze in episode 78 yeah. Whenever I'm zooming with my grad students, like we have, we laugh every time. He sees it's very loud. So are you guys, uh, um, I mean, there's a lot that's changing or just, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in academia as a whole, right? I mean, you mentioned there's hiring freezes. So you, UO has a hiring freeze. I think a lot of universities have a hiring freeze right now. Um, there's, uh, a lot of talk about what to do about tenure clocks. Um, I think the the sort of the easy thing that a lot of universities have done is have said, well, you can take an extra year, but I don't think that really solves most of the hard problems with that. Um, yeah, like, are you, you know, so in some ways, I mean, this is another way, which certainly the tenure clock thing, I feel pretty insulated from because I'm past that. Um, and the hiring freeze thing, I'm not on the job market. Uh, I see a lot of concern among students right now and, and junior faculty. Um, I can't imagine. I mean, the other thing that's... Being yeah. on the job market or on the verge of going on the job market, like, I just think I know. it looks so bleak. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I... Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, taking... If you've got an opportunity now, take it, because, yeah, they might go away, but um, it's really it's really tough. Like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of... In terms of my own lab, I don't have anyone who's like in that very serious pinch right now, which I'm I'm sort of happy for, you know, um, you know, for my students that they're not like there. There's nobody who's like doesn't have doesn't know what they're doing in the fall. Um, uh, well, that's not entirely true. There's among my direct advisees. There anyway, but um, uh, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I mean, there are students in my program who are 
you know, have had stuff canceled, students that I know and work with, and, and it's a real source of anxiety for them. There's also, you know, I don't know what's coming in terms of, like, broader things. Apparently, my university uh, told my union earlier this week that they need to have an emergency meeting about emergency, quote-unquote, emergency financial arrangements, which um, our president just announced that he's taking a voluntary pay cut, so everyone's assuming that that's, like, a PR move in, in advance of telling faculty to take a pay cut or telling oh, staff that's or, so, or grad students. That's sad. I was just thinking when you said it, I was like, whoa, that's super cool. What a, <laughs> what a That's nice exactly move. why they do it. No, yeah, I mean, yeah. he makes fucking like $800,000 a year. Okay. Like it's not, you know, a 12% pay Damn, cut. Damn, I feel like, like such a sucker. I know. It, so it's like, on the one hand, it's not hurting him. On the other hand, he's not, it's not obje- like, I'm not saying he shouldn't do it, but like, it's not objectively saving enough money to keep the university afloat. Like, He's doing it because it's a signal. Right. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, so they're going to, I mean, thank goodness we have our faculty, our, uh, um, our classified staff, which is the sort of uh, um, the, the hourly staff, and our grad students all have unions. And so they're going to hopefully hold the administration somewhat accountable if they say they have to institute pay cuts. But I think that's going to be something that's going to be coming in a lot of places. Um, again, I feel like I'm probably, if that happens, I'm probably going to get hit by it, but like, I'll still have a job. I really worry about, uh, that they're going to cut positions. They're going to cut, you know, adjunct and contingent faculty. They're going to cut, you know, dorm, you know, people that work in the dorms and cafeterias. Um, I mean, I'm guessing, but, but like, these are, you know, there are a lot of people who are essentially, you know, it's a hundred percent pay cut because they're going to lose their jobs. Um. That's very worrisome. Mm-hmm. I think you effectively wiped out our silver linings discussion, Sanjay. There we go. That's that's my thing. <laughs> I, uh, oh, everybody feels so closer together in, in the COVID nineteen thing. I was like, oh fuck you! I lost my job. Don't say that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I, I just I, I I feel I feel like a buffoon if I start talking about the like silver lining when I know how much people are. Suffering. Yeah. I feel like all of us should feel like buffoons talking about silver linings because I mean, at least the three of us, I think, um, are like not, are not the ones who have to deal with the really shitty stuff. Yeah. I feel like instead of cheering people up with the bright side, I should be like, if I'm going to do anything and I, I certainly can't claim I've done enough of this, but like trying to, you know, speak out for the people that are going to get hurt even worse than I am feels like a more productive use of, you know, whatever platform and access I have than, than talking about how isn't it wonderful everyone's coming together right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like all these mixed feelings about like, yeah, like since I'm not teaching, I'm helping with the classes that are like overwhelmed and writing exams and stuff like that. And the, I, I absolutely want to do that. And it's good that people are doing that and so on. But also we're like, working for a money-making institution that is benefiting from us like being like sure i'll take on this unofficial extra duties that no one is going to recognize is actually being done much less pay for so like so i do feel like there's this it's great like you know donating to gofundmes and stuff like that there's this mixed feeling right like i want to be there for those people i want to help but also like it's fucked up that it's come to this right that like the formal structures aren't working 
to like provide the support that people need. And so we have to like do GoFundMe's and we have to like do unrecognized and unpaid labor for each other that is actually part of the institutional obligations that yeah. they should, I don't know. I don't like, yeah, it's hard to know who to blame exactly, but yeah. it feels like framing it just as a positive right. thing that we're all helping each other out is missing part of the point of like who actually ought to be responsible for some of this stuff. Yeah, that, that comes up. I hear this critique a lot about like in, in the broader societal mm-hmm. sense about philanthropy, right? Like, oh, we're giving this person all this credit for philanthropy. And it's like, one, how fucked up is it that like you need to go mm-hmm. buy health care for people or whatever it is? And, and number two, how fucked right. up is it that you amassed such an absurd amount of resources in, right. in the first place that you get to look like right. an angel for giving like a tiny sliver of it to people? Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think in the context of the more local context of universities, it's like, yeah, I, a lot of, I'm very proud of my colleagues who've really stepped up. Um, and, you know, universities are this weird thing because we're this nonprofit where the, you know, in our case, a state institution, in the case of private universities, nonprofits, we have an educational mission. I feel a very strong sense of like, wanting my students to be supported and still have a right to their education so that's why i'm doing it but but at the same time it's like if i look at this in a more like employer employee sense it's like they're talking about pay cuts but people deserve bonuses right now and that was you know i sent an email to my union rep and i was like okay you guys are having this meeting about pay cuts and i was like there's this tendency to just, you look at the world, you look at the financial situation, and that's your starting point, and that's your given, and then you reason out from there. And I was like, you could also start with the fact that people are doing extraordinary work and reason out from there. And and then when you ask people to take a pay cut, because maybe you have to, you don't, you don't give privilege to the financial situation. You say, I have to reconcile the fact that times are tough with the fact that people are doing extraordinary things right now. And I, I'm not just gonna say, well, one of those is the given that we have to like reason out from. I'm gonna say both of those are facts on equal footing. And if we're gonna ask people to pay cut to take pay cuts, we have to acknowledge that we're asking people who are doing unusually mission-driven work right now. And then in the context being like, we're the lucky ones for having jobs at all. But but you know, um, I think that, you know, it's just it's, it's really easy to say, oh, the university is, you know, having a, you know, this difficult time, tuition dollars are down. Yeah, yeah, that's all true. But uh, um, we're working our asses off to deliver education while you're paying $12 million for a fucking jumbotron at the stadium, which is what my university just spent a bunch of money on. I'm wearing an Oregon sweatshirt right now. I feel, now you're making me feel terrible. Oh, that's so funny. So am I. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Alabama I'll send you definitely doesn't spend uh, okay. $12 million on a Jumbotron. That would, they would never do something like that. <laughs> that would be pocket change for their Jumbotron budget. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I guess, yeah. I, I think I don't have a response to what you guys were talking about that wouldn't like... Uh, open a can of worms or like start a whole different conversation. I mean, I have a hard time like not, um, I don't know, it's like sympathizing with universities. Like it, it's not obvious to me that like universities, like um, if they like had handled the situation appropriately, like they wouldn't have to be asking people to take pay cuts or doing hiring freezes. But, but I just don't, 
I don't understand universities at the level of administration enough. Like, I feel like... But it's a whole society, right? Like, if society wants... Yeah, sure. Like, if society were perfect, like, maybe... I don't know about that. I mean, perfect. yes. It just so has like, to like act in accordance with its values. So if you want people to be able to have healthcare, even if they lose their job when there's a pandemic, then you have a safety net that provides healthcare when oh, people lose their job. If I, you want people to be able to continue getting an education when there's a recession, then you build the system. I such that totally agree with that. I agree that like this pandemic has highlighted like the ways in which society is failing people left and right. I'm completely on board with that. I also think that like. I benefit from that system all the time. And so to like be in a position now where I have to like, I feel like I should make some sacrifices seems totally reasonable. I think this is, this is what's the fundamental difficulty or whatever that you're for me, like the unresolvable difficulty of being an employee at a mission driven nonprofit, which is run like a business sometimes often, you know, which is like, I, I'm here because I believe in the work we're doing, the educational work, the research work as an intrinsic good. Um, but I also have a transactional relationship as an employee. And, and the university certainly treats that as, an, as a transactional relationship when it, you know, benefits them to do so. And so it's like, I can't be just one or the other. Like, I can't just be like, purely transactional will just give me mine. And I can't be like... Mm-hmm well, I'm just going to do whatever it takes for the students because, and, and if, you know, and then let the university, let my, you know, employer exploit me over that. And so it's like, if, if I was, I don't know, it's like, you could sort of imagine this ideal case where like, maybe if I was just in a purely transactional line of work, I would just be like, give me mine. And, you know, I don't know if I was like independently wealthy and doing charity work, I would just be like, whatever it takes. And it's like, we're we're kind of neither one and i think sometimes we sometimes like because we care about the mission it's sometimes we sort of uh let ourselves be exploited a little bit more than we would otherwise but on the other hand it's like like i said like i'm not gonna i don't want to make decisions that are going to hurt my students um my undergrad or grad students um and and yeah it's like i i or even like my chair i, don't, I wouldn't want to be right like I, that's yeah. what's hard yeah. is like none of the people we actually deal with face to face are at fault or responsible for the situation so like in yeah. our day-to-day decisions i'm always like that isn't really affecting how, what i decide to do and things like that but yeah. in a, when i step back then i think wait like i certainly understand why somebody might feel like that it shouldn't have come to this but yeah, in the day to day, we yeah. can't really let that stop us from. Yeah, I mean, I w- on the one hand, I feel like I wouldn't want to be our VP of budget stuff, and on the other hand, I'm like, well, he makes like five <laughs> times as much as I do, so it, it's his problem. Like, I'm not going to make his life easier by like letting him cut my pay without pushing back. So, um, you know, yeah, I guess it is what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that that's the most cliche way to end the podcast? It, it is, is what it is. Guys. <laughs> I think we're about at the end of our time yeah. though, so should we uh, should we wrap on a cliche? Yeah, sure. All right. Um, uh, thank you all for listening to the uh, usually less cliche ending Black Goat podcast, and we'll uh, talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.